Well, uh, you can, if you have your Bible or smart device, you can start to navigate to where we're going to be this morning. But uh, while you do that, to Joshua chapter 2, um, I'll tell you just a, a little bit of a story here. Uh, just this past week, uh, Amy and I were watching the movie The Rocketeer. Have you seen the movie The Rocketeer from the 90s? That was one of our favorites growing up. And we found it online this week. And so after the kids went to bed one night, we, we curled up together to watch it. And we were surprised to see that one of the supporting characters was played by an actress that we knew. We didn't know who she was when we watched The Rocketeer in the early 90s. Uh, and if you're familiar with the TV show The Office, anybody a fan of The Office? You can admit it. I, I'm, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was the, the gal who plays Jan Levinson Gould is in The Rocketeer. And she's, she's just kind of a supporting character. She's in a couple scenes in this nightclub where she's singing And uh, we saw her come on the screen and we thought, wow, I I had no idea that she was in that. Um, More notably, if you've seen the film Forrest Gump, let me see your hand, right? That's a classic 1994, kind of changed the the face of modern cinema. And in Forrest Gump from 1994, you probably remember the scene where a young Forrest meets Elvis Presley. Famous scene, right? Does anyone know who portrays Elvis in Forrest Gump? Never really thought about it much because in the, the brief scene where he interacts with Forrest, he's kind of obscured. You see the back of his head. Uh, when you see him facing forward, he's, he's kind of blurred. And that was intentional because Robert Zemeckis uh, had cast his friend, Kurt Russell, to play Elvis Presley. But it's surprising because he's obscured, because he's blurred. In the text of Scripture that we'll be looking at together this morning... There's a character that you might not be super familiar with. Um, Her name is Rahab, and in the grand scheme of the storyline of the Bible, she's a relatively minor character. She's relatively blurred and obscured. Well, look with me at Joshua chapter 2, and uh, before we do that, allow me to pray for our time in the Word together. Our loving God, we ask you that you would help me to speak clearly and that you would help us to understand your word and apply it to our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read the the entirety of chapter 2. There is nothing better that you could hear come out of my mouth than God's word. You could leave here and hear none of my opinion. You would be much better off. But if you hear God speak to you this morning, then we've had a, a great day at church. Amen. But you'll get my opinion after the scripture too. (laughs) Joshua chapter 2, Rahab shelters the spies. Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. That was not true. Okay? They hadn't left. 
do not know where the men went. And then she tells the king's men, pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, uh, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me, Rahab says, by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household. And give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them. And deliver our lives from death. And so the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. Remember the famous walls of Jericho? She said to them, go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourself there for three days, that's interesting, until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. The men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to which we have to which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window in which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be freed. But anyone who is with you in the house... His blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from this oath, which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. Thank God. Then the two men returned and came down to the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. This is God's word for us today. If you grew up around the church or in the church or if you ever attended vacation Bible school or anything of that nature, you may have heard about the Battle of Jericho. It's a, a song that Christians have sung in Sunday school for many years. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. 
and the walls came a-tumbling down. Right? You know what? I, I won't ask you to sing it with me. Don't worry. You've done, you've done enough singing for the morning. That's never true. You can always do more singing. But I won't have you sing Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. But, you, but we're familiar. And if you weren't familiar, now you are. Maybe you remember how the angel of the Lord came to Joshua in the book of Joshua in chapters 5 and 6 and gave him detailed and, to be honest, very strange instructions to conquer Jericho. The, the Israelites were to march around the walls of Jericho one time each day for six days silently. That would be creepy. If you're inside the walls of Jericho and you look out and you see this famed army of Israel marching around the walls and they're not saying a word. That would be creepy. Then the, the angel of the Lord tells Joshua to have them on the seventh day march around the wall seven times. So on the seventh day, they're doing this. They march around and the people of the city are like, whew, good, that's almost over. And then they do it again. They go, oh, something's different. And they, they repeat that pattern. They march around the, the walls of Jericho seven times on the seventh day. And then when they're done, all the priests blow their trumpets and all the people let out a great shout. And what happens? The walls came a-tumbling down. Right. Often when there's a Bible story as familiar of this as this, it's easy for us to skip over some of the important surrounding details, some of the supporting characters, some of those figures that are blurred in the background. You've, you've heard of missing the forest for the trees. This is kind of the opposite of that, where we miss the individual trees because we're just looking at the big picture. I want for us to zoom in and look at one of the specific trees in this forest. That's also the case for us this time of year, around Christmas every year. We're so familiar with the narrative of the birth of Jesus that, like I, I mentioned earlier, and as we mentioned last week, it's far too easy for us to no longer be amazed by the miracle that took place 2,000 years ago. Jesus was born of a virgin. And we really do ourselves a great disservice when we merely skim past those events in Scripture without pausing and going, wow. Have you ever noticed in the book of Psalms, there's a little word that's offset to the right column. Uh, every now and then it's Selah. And, and scholars and theologians can't come to a, a certain consensus about what it means or kind of what its origins were. The best we can gather, though, is that it's a, a marker within the music to pause and think about what you just sang. I think we need to have some Selah moments at Christmas. We need to have some moments where we step back and we go, that's amazing. The nativity scene that gets put up in the window of a secular toy store that's not just a cute story about a baby being born. The rescuer of the world born to a virgin. So here in Joshua is where we look at that unparalleled miracle of the virgin birth of Christ and we trace it back thousands of years and see a couple of things. First of all, that God has been miraculously at work to save a people for his own eternal glory since the beginning. From day one, he has been at work to redeem a people for his own eternal glory. And second, we find Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. He doesn't just show up in Matthew's gospel out of nowhere. There's promises, there's pictures, there's prophecies 
of this coming rescuer. Not only is Jesus the eternal God, but he's been showing himself to humanity for ages through events like the one that we just read in Joshua. So you, you may be thinking now, this close to Christmas, it seems weird for Dan to be preaching about a prostitute and a couple of spies, right? Like, that may come across to those of you who know that I'm, I'm going to be transitioning into my next season of ministry as a church planter. You may just be going like, this is just an excuse for him to preach a sermon about prostitutes and spies. This is the last time he's preaching here at Grace Family before uh, the end of the year, and he just wanted to preach a weird message. No, I think if you, if you tune in and you stay with me, you'll see why Rahab is a very important figure in the Christmas story. Join me just very quickly in the New Testament in the Gospel according to Matthew. This is something that we more often read around Christmas time. Uh, and this is a section of Scripture, even the narrative of the birth of Christ, that if we're honest, we either skip or at best we skim the genealogies. Anybody do that? You get to the genealogies and you go, I don't even know how to pronounce half these names. Let, yeah, and, and begat is just a weird word anyway, right? Well, let me, let me read some of this to you, and we're going we're gonna to see why we're in Joshua 2. It says this, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. And then in verse 2, it says this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. Now, I want to slow down. We, we read these names, and we go, okay, those are kind of familiar. You know, like Father Abraham had many sons. I'm not going to do the Sunday school singing again. Don't worry. You've had your fill of that. But we know who David was. We know who Abraham was. Some of these other names are maybe kind of familiar to you. But, but slow down and think about this. When God called Abraham from the wilderness, he was a pagan. The Jewish religion didn't exist at that point. The Tower of Babel had happened, and God had dispersed people and broken up their language. And so this is the beginning of the Jewish religion when God calls Abraham. But when he called him, he was a pagan. So already we've got a pagan in the lineage of Jesus. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Do you remember Isaac lied about his wife being his sister? So we've got a pagan and a liar. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. You know what Jacob means? The name Jacob means heel grabber because he grabbed his twin brother's heel as they were being born. But it meant something deeper than just that he grabbed his heel. It meant he was a deceiver. It meant he was deceptive. So we've got a pagan, we've got a liar, we've got a deceiver. In the lineage of Jesus and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Oh, good. Now we've finally gotten to some good guys. Except do you remember who Judah was? Well, Matthew's going to go on and tell us in verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Does Tamar ring any bells? If you don't know who Judah and Tamar were, you can read about them in Genesis chapter 38, where Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. Wait a minute, I thought we just read that Perez and, what's his name? <laughs> Perez and Zerah. You can see why I forgot Zerah. Uh, Perez and Zerah, I thought they were the children of Judah and Tamar, but you're telling me Tamar is his daughter-in-law? Yeah, she was married to Judah's son, and Judah's son died. And so Judah promised Tamar his next son. When 
when he gets old enough, he's a kid now, but when he gets old enough, you can marry him. You'll still have your inheritance in the family. So that son uh, grows of age, and, and Judah doesn't give him to Tamar in marriage. In this culture, you have to remember that she had nothing. She had no way of providing for herself. It wasn't like the society that we live in. She couldn't just run down the street and get a job. That wasn't the world they lived in. Her, her sustenance, her provision came from having a husband, and her husband had died. And Judah failed to keep his word to her to give his next son to her in marriage. So Tamar does something that is very uh, surprising to us. You like Christmas surprises? Here's a surprise. She puts a, a, a covering on her face, and she hides by the side of the road and pretends to be a prostitute. And she seduces Judah to sleep with her, and she conceives Perez and Zerah. So Judah, not a man of his word, Tamar, uh, is willing to play the harlot. These are all in the, the lineage of Jesus. And yet Jesus would be called the lion of whose tribe? Judah. Perez was the father of Hezron in verse 3. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. We're getting a little bored? Hang on. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. The harlot, the prostitute. In the lineage of Jesus. Boaz, it's going to get good here again in a moment, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, the king. We could literally spend the rest of this week just exploring the stories of each of the names listed there, and that's only half of the genealogy. But suffice it to say that Rahab, whom we just saw in Joshua 2, was a prostitute, would become the great-great-grandmother of the Messiah. She would be the great-grandmother of the king of Israel, the beloved king, David, the psalmist who wrote almost half of the psalms in the Bible. And Jesus would be called the son of David through Rahab's lineage. Matthew continues this genealogy all the way through to Joseph, uh, Mary's husband. But Rahab, she's this character that we're kind of surprised to find in the Christmas story. She's one who's obscured in this picture like we've been talking about. And yet, of all the people God could have used in Jericho, he could have used anyone. He chose her. He chose Rahab. He, he saved her and her family was saved by virtue of being found under her roof. Pause and think about that for a moment. God didn't save Rahab because of any good in her. He saved her on the basis of faith. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, in the famous 11th chapter, what many call the Hall of Faith, says this in verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish 
along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. She's listed in this chapter amongst the likes of Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Moses and Samson, heroes of the faith. And then the writer of the Hebrews says, and and you remember that prostitute, Rahab? She's a hero of the faith too. She wasn't saved by virtue of anything that she had done, but on the foundation of faith. It was by faith that Rahab was saved. It wasn't because she protected the two Israelite spies from the king. It wasn't that she hid them on her roof. It wasn't her placing the scarlet cord out of the window that we'll talk a little bit more about in a bit. It wasn't something she did that saved her. It was something she had. And if you think for a moment after just now reading through the genealogy of Jesus, that the faith that she possessed was something that she conjured up on her own. And that God went, oh, oh, that's something I can work with. If you think that that was something that she had on her own, apart from the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit within her, you're sorely mistaken. Because the faith that she had was a gift. The Apostle Paul explains to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that both the grace and the faith that saves us are a singular gift of God. Our salvation, our forgiveness, our being made right with God is a gift from him. It's true for us. It was true for Rahab all these years ago. God gave her the faith to do those things that we talked about to hide the spies, to hang that scarlet cord from her window, to plead with her family to shelter in her home under the protection that she had found. All of that came as a result of the faith that God had given her. So here in the next 15 15 minutes or so, um, what I'd like to do is just to simply look at a few of the verses uh, in the passage that we read at the beginning of the sermon. And make a few observations. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would take those observations and apply them to our hearts to strengthen our faith. And if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. Wouldn't that be amazing? I want you to look at someone near you and say, if you don't know Jesus, go ahead, look at someone and say, if you don't know Jesus, today is your day. A little bit more convincing this time. If you don't know Jesus, today is your day. Yeah. So let's look again at Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, where we find the two spies Joshua sent to Jericho, quote, went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So you might hear that verse and think they were up to no good. Right? That seems like you go to a prostitute's house, it's kind of evident what you're up to. But it's important to notice and understand these two things. First of all, the scripture doesn't indicate in any way whatsoever that they were engaging Rahab as a prostitute. I don't think that happened there at all. Whatsoever, in any way. That's not to say that there are not unseemly things that take place within the pages of scripture. There's many examples, but I don't think that's what's happening here. And secondly, as strangers in Jericho, this was probably the most logical thing for them to do, to go unnoticed. Think about this, in the the house of a prostitute, men would have been coming and going all day, right? 
It wouldn't have seemed out of place for these two spies to be going into her house. It didn't seem suspicious. And then in verse 2 it says this, It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. Does this remind you of the insecure behavior of any other kings in the Bible? Remember when the Magi, the wise men, came to King Herod. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, we read this. They come to Herod and they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. And then down in verse 16 of that chapter, it says, Herod became very enraged and sent and killed all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men, the Magi. So I want you to understand this here this morning. Our enemy doesn't have a very extensive playbook. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And what Herod wanted to do when he sensed that his kingdom was under threat of being seized by God is exactly what the king of Jericho wanted to do when he heard that men had been sent from Israel to spy out the land. He wanted to kill them. He wanted to eliminate the threat. What he didn't understand was that that land wasn't his. It had already been promised to Israel by God. It was God's land. And God had allowed Jericho to be there for a time, but the day was fast approaching when he would lay claim of that land and give it to the people he was saving. Did you know, first of all, that all of the land promises that God made to Abraham have been fulfilled? We're not waiting on God to keep his word. He's kept his word. Don't take my word for it. The Lord said so in Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, when he tells Joshua, quote, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you. Not I'm going to give it to you. I have given it to you. And he tasks Joshua and the Israelites to just go take possession of it. It was theirs all the way back then. As soon as they crossed the Jordan, he says, I've given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. So Israel wasn't waiting on God to keep any of the land promises. But secondly, and far more extensively, God has made a promise for the future. For all those who are in Christ. For all those who have put their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit Not just a little strip of land. They shall inherit the earth. And that's a promise that will be fulfilled in the last day. Just like God kept his word to the Israelites of the promised land. There's a better promised land coming. A lot bigger. A lot more extensive. What John says in Revelation is when the new heavens come down and reunite with the new earth. The renewed creation. God's not doing away with what he created. He's renewing it. And at that last day, when what Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, 
And at the last day, he will stand upon what? The earth. He's not going to throw away what he created. He's going to redeem it. And that's what he's in the business of doing today. Now, back up from the last day to today. You see what's going on in the world today. The tension we feel between right and wrong, between truth and lies, between good and evil. Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the accuser of the brethren, knows that we are pilgrims here. He knows that the earth has been promised to God's people. And he feels the same kind of insecurity and dread that the king of Jericho felt when the spies came to spy out the land. He felt the same kind of fear and panic that King Herod felt when he heard that one who was called the king of the Jews had been born. And so Satan's lashing out. And I want you to know this. He can't destroy us. The enemy cannot destroy us. But he wants to. He's on a chain. When Christ was resurrected, when he conquered death, hell, and the grave, he put Satan on a chain. And it's a short one. Now, if you're walking down the street and you see somebody's dog chained up in their yard, whew, might panic you for a second when it charges at you, but that chain's going to keep him back, right? Don't be an idiot and go in that yard. If that dog is foaming at the mouth and barking and biting at you. So Satan has the ability to cause some damage. But if you stay within the safety of where God has called us to be, he will not harm us. He's roaming around, the word tells us, like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. For we serve a true and mightier one. Amen? One who descended from Judah, from David, from Rahab. Surprising Rahab. It's surprising God would choose to use her, of all people. But it's incredibly encouraging, too. He isn't looking for the best among us. He's not looking for the most talented. He's not looking for the most intelligent. He's not looking for the most godly, the most disciplined. Maybe you're here today and you feel like a failure, a disappointment, a burden, an afterthought. Listen, there's a, there's a popular worldview that wants to tell you, you're good enough. You're smart enough. And doggone it, people like you. Remember that from Saturday Night Live. It was funny back in the day, and now if you go into a bookstore, that's about all you'll find. It's taken root in our culture, but it's a false gospel. It offers no hope. The world is telling you you're good enough, but you're not. You're not. No matter how hard you try, you never will be. Not on your own. And at first, that may sound discouraging. You're going, Dan, I, I thought you were about to say something encouraging, and, and now you're laying into us, telling us we're not good enough. It's exactly the opposite of discouraging. 
you're not good enough. But neither was the Apostle Paul. Neither was King David. Neither was Rahab or Judah or Jacob or Isaac or Abraham. They weren't good enough to save themselves. But there's one who is. Jesus. He alone is able to save. He alone is enough. As I mentioned earlier, it was the God-given faith that Rahab possessed that allowed her to act. It propelled her forward. She acted in faith, not ignorantly, but out of wisdom based upon the mighty works that God had done. Listen again to Joshua 2, verse 9. It says this. This is Rahab speaking. I know that the Lord has given you this land. She's confessing truth. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. I was talking with our Joshua here today uh, about how it's easy for us to lose sight of the time that elapses when we read Scripture. Because we're like, like four pages ago, I'm reading about God delivering the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians, and now I'm reading about Jericho. It feels like this was like three days later, or you know, a year maybe. This is four decades later, after God had delivered the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians, and they're still talking about what God had done. She continues, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted. Remember this part. And no courage, none, remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She's saying he doesn't just have jurisdiction in heaven. He's God here. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like the testimony of a very convinced person of who God is of what he's capable of. She doesn't say, we've seen all your God has done and I hate him for it. No, she recognizes that it's his world and she wants to be on his side. But compare her response to that of the king of Jericho. If Rahab knew what the Lord had done, the king would certainly have known. This wasn't just something commoners knew. They knew it because the king knew it and it was talked about you ever see Israelites coming, you come tell me. But knowing what God has done is not sufficient to save. It's necessary. You need to hear what God has done in order to be saved. But that's not all there is to it. It's not sufficient. Just mere knowledge is not enough. Even the demons know what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And instead of turning to him in trust and faith, believing, they double down in their rebellion. And we do it too. As humans, the king of Jericho foolishly stood opposed to the Lord and was destroyed. But Rahab wisely surrendered and was saved. Again, she didn't trust in her own power to save. She didn't buy the mantra of today, you're good enough. You're smart enough. She didn't buy that. She knew she wasn't good enough. She knew that the only way to be saved was to put her trust in the Lord, the God of Israel. 
And so Rahab, knowing that the land had already been given to Israel, the spies agreed with her that she would be spared if, in faith, she told no one of their plan. It's a big ask for them to say, don't tell anyone, and you just kind of have to take our word for it that we'll spare you. And in order to make sure that Rahab and everyone in her household was protected, they, they gave her a red cord, a scarlet cord to tie in her window. And you can read about this promise being kept in Joshua chapter 6. I wish I had two hours to preach because I'd love to preach about the destruction of Jericho, but I'm just going to give you some homework to do this week. Read about that in Joshua chapter 6 when that promise is kept and Rahab and all her household, her father, her mother, her brothers, her sisters, and all of their family were saved. There was another event in the Old Testament where the people that God spared were told to mark their homes in red. Namely, with the blood of a lamb. It was when God was delivering the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians. We've touched on that just briefly this morning. And he told them to kill a lamb and mark their door with its blood. So that that night when the angel of death came through, he would pass over the homes of those who were covered by the blood of the lamb. And that is why still to this day, Israelites, those who observe the Jewish religion... Uh, and many Christians observe the Passover feast as a reminder that God passed over and spared the lives of those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb. And those who did not have the blood on their doorposts were killed that night. And likewise, apart from Christ, we're slaves. They were enslaved to Egypt. We're enslaved to our sin. God created humanity after his own likeness. And as such, we had perfect fellowship with him until our first parents disobeyed. And from then on, all we have known is broken communion, broken fellowship, broken friendship, separation from our creator and from one another. And no matter how hard we may try, there is nothing we could ever do on our own to lift ourselves high enough to be made right with him. Knowing this, he did for us what we could never do. This is what Christmas is all about. It's not about the lights that we hang on our houses. It's not about the meals. It's not about the presents. It's not about the snow. Those are nice things. And there's a lot of symbolism in each of them. But it's not about those about this, that God took on human flesh and came and dwelt among us and lived a perfect, sinless life that you and I never could. He died in our place, the death that we deserve to die for our sin, paying the debt that we owed but could never afford. I think many of us can, this time of year, relate. It's like, oh my goodness, we're a week and a half from Christmas and I feel like I've got so many more gifts I want to buy for people and I just don't have the money. Magnify that by eternity. You could never afford to pay the debt that you owe to your creator. Never. That's why the rescuer had to be truly God 
and truly man because it was mankind who sinned. So mankind had to die. But he had to be truly God in order to save us because if I were to die for even just my own sins, it wouldn't pay for the debt that I owe, let alone the debt that the world owes. And so Jesus lived that sinless life and died in our place, the death that we deserve, paying the debt that we owe but could never afford. And three days later, he was raised to life again, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And listen to this. The writer of Hebrews tells us, listen, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Who's Jesus praying for right now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father praying for those who will draw near to God through him. And he will save them forever. We don't serve a Savior who tries to save. We serve a perfect Savior. He accomplishes, listen, Isaiah says the word of God always accomplishes what it was sent forth to do. Who is the living word of God? Jesus. So when he was sent forth by the Father 2,000 years ago to a manger in Bethlehem, the word of God was sent forth, always accomplishes what it's sent forth to do. He doesn't just make salvation possible. He purchased our salvation. And through the Bible, there, there runs a scarlet cord from what our friend and my mentor, John Mark Clifton, always says. It's from Genesis 1 to the maps in the back. There's a scarlet cord running from page 1 to the very end that leads us to Christ. The great Passover lamb whose scarlet blood ran down from his hands, from his feet, from his head, from his side. The greatest gift ever given. Do you wonder why red is such a significant color in our Christmas decorations? It reminds us of the blood of Christ. Okay, well, what about green, Dan, Mr. Smart Guy? Well, what does green represent? It represents life. We have life only in the blood of Christ. To those here today who have not yet trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, will you be like Rahab? and say, I've heard about what God has done, and I want to be on his side? Or will you be like the king of Jericho saying, I've heard what God has done, and I stand opposed to him? Rahab was saved. The king of Jericho was destroyed. For those here today who are in Christ, maybe you felt weakened or even fallen prey to that false gospel that we spoke of that says you're good enough. As followers of Christ, we have to constantly be reminded of the source of our life because we're far too often prone to trust our own works, our own righteousness. So I want to invite you this morning to just take a few moments to pray right where you are. Just take this time this morning to confess to the Lord how you've failed. Each of us have this week in a multitude of ways. And be encouraged by the promise that we have in the book of Romans. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you're here as a Christian, you've failed. Just take some time to give that to the Lord. And rather than letting that time of repentance 
push you away from him. Let it draw you closer to him in dependence. So if you're one today who has yet to trust the Lord Jesus and would like to do so, please come talk to me. We can stand six feet apart. I'll put on a mask if you want. But come talk to me. Let me know. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And if that's you today, I want to pray for you. I want to give you a free Bible and just talk about what to do next as you follow Jesus. So we're just going to play some instrumental music uh, while we pray. Um, I'm going to pray to conclude our formal time together. You're welcome to, to slip out quietly if you'd like, and you'll catch the kickoff. We've got time. <laughs> uh, but for those who would like to just take a few moments, just right where you are to bow your head and pray and confess. And so, Lord, I, I want to I lead us in this time that, as I said, it's, it's not just the weak among us here today. It's, it's all of us. We're all the weak. So I don't stand up here saying that I haven't failed you this week, Lord. I, I want to be the first to say, Jesus, I've failed you in many ways this week. I've failed you in many ways even this morning. And I am immensely grateful for your mercy, for your kindness. You don't just love us when we get ourselves cleaned up. You love us where we are, and you love us enough to not leave us where we are. So, Father, I repent for the ways that I have broken your standard, broken your commandments, broken your heart this week. You are good, you are kind, you are merciful, and may we never take for granted your mercy. seats here in the sanctuary today that you would build their faith that this Christmas season in a very strange year would be one that they look back on for eternity and remember that this was the year that you did something powerful in their life, you did something miraculous in their life, you called them to a higher place, a higher standard and a, a deeper fellowship with you Lord Jesus